Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Hey, how you guys doing? Great to see you here this morning. Thank you, Austin. Just to be clear, what day is Sharon Smith's birthday again? August 7th. Okay, all right, there we go. So we all know that. That's great. Um, great. Th- thanks for, uh, thanks for uh, leading us this morning, worship band. Love the energy this morning. We've got some rainy day energy going on in Arizona in the middle of July. Can you believe it? We've got this drizzly kind of rainy day in the middle of July in Arizona. And not just the kind that comes and like blows dust everywhere, but actual rain for this past week, which is, which is awesome. Um, of course, we're not always prepared for this kind of rain. Our building was not prepared for this kind of rain. It's a desert building. And so we've had leaks and kind of all kinds of other floods that have been going on all around our building this past week. And so, um, but don't fear, uh, I came prepared. If we start to float away, I wore my anchor shirt today. So we're, we're covered. Yeah, I know, I know. You know, the best part of that joke is that you're going to be thinking for the rest of the day, did he wear that shirt just to make that dumb joke, right? And my answer is maybe, maybe I did that. All right, so (laughs) all that to say, guys, we have come to the last week of the book of Ephesians. Are you guys excited to finish the book of Ephesians? I hope it has been something that has been an encouragement to you. This is, as we said at the beginning of this series, there is probably, uh, one scholar at least said, there is probably no book that pound for pound is more more, uh, wonderful and powerful than the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. And so we have seen that throughout this series. It's carried us through the summer. And now we are finishing it today as we look at the second half of Ephesians chapter 6. And as you know, as we've been through this series, we know that Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus in the first century. And one of the things about when you come to the closing of a letter, most good letter writers are going to kind of sum up for you what it is that they want you to remember as you finish the letter. And that's exactly what we're getting here in Ephesians chapter 6. Now, you may know that this is the section, famously, that is known as the armor of God section, because this is where Paul talks about the armor of God. And really what I want us to remember and to see here is that context is important in understanding uh, this, this, particular, um, this particular ending to the letter. In other words, what Paul is doing is he's providing us with this metaphor in terms of the armor of God that is really tying together all these big themes that he's been talking about throughout the book of Ephesians. And it all comes to a place where it ties together here. Now, context is critically important. We talked last week about, uh, last couple weeks about how important historical context was to understanding Paul's instruction to uh, wives and to children and to slaves. Well, in this case, context is important in terms of what is known as literary context for us. In other words, what has come before this, what is informing what we get to in the second half of Ephesians as Paul closes out this letter because, again, everything ties together and finds its kind of uh, understanding in this metaphor as Paul closes out this letter. And I, I say that because I know that when we read through a section like this, this is, this is probably, I guess, probably the best known piece of, of, of the book of Ephesians, maybe the most well-known passage in all of Ephesians, and that's saying a lot because there's a lot of familiar passages in this book. It's also one of the most powerful, and I think for a lot, a lot of reasons, because of the subject matter, it's talking about spiritual warfare, so that gets our attention, and there's so much vivid imagery here, right? There's the, the fiery flaming darts of Satan that are being shot at us, and then there's the shield of faith, and the breastplate of righteousness, and the belt of truth, and all these things. We've got this image of a soldier fighting, right? It gets our attention. And in a lot of ways, uh, what happens then is that those individual parts begin getting our attention, the armor, the darts, and all those kinds of things, when in reality, what we need to do is take a step back and understand exactly why it is that Paul's using these metaphors. It gives us a much better understanding into exactly why he describes it the way that he does. And so we're going to talk about each one of those individual pieces of armor that Paul mentions here in a few minutes. But before we do, I want to get to the verses actually that lead up to that piece. So we're going to read the first few verses here, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13 that are really the introduction to this and help set the context then for Paul then to talk about, okay, these are all the individual pieces of the armor of God. So it starts in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, and Paul says this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. 
And let's stop there for a minute. Now, if you know this passage well, or of course you look ahead to the next few verses, you can see that we stopped right before Paul breaks down then the whole armor of God, all the individual pieces here. And what I want us to see here first, though, is that as we, as, as what, this, what, what this is telling us in the front end is it's giving us a command which really f- kind of flows down through the rest of the end of this chapter. And that command happens there in verse 10. The leading imperative, and this is really the focus of this entire passage, by the way. We need to get this as the main point that Paul's trying to get across to us, is that we are to be strong in the Lord and to be strong in the strength of his might. Notice what that doesn't say. It doesn't say that we're to be strong in ourselves. It doesn't say that we're to be strong in our own faith, strong in our ability, strong in our giftings, even strong in the armor of God. It says to be strong in the Lord, to be strong in Christ and in his strength. So then whatever we face, whether it's spiritual warfare, difficulty, whatever darts are coming at us, we're encouraged to stand in the strength of the Lord. Now, looking at literary context, this has become... We have seen this before in this letter. This should remind us of all the times where Paul talks about in Christ over and over again. You may remember a few, several weeks ago, towards the beginning of this series, we talked about how many times Paul is going to use that phrase in Christ throughout the book of Ephesians. In fact, it's so predominant throughout this letter that we could say the purpose of our salvation is actually so that we can be in Christ. And what Paul's bringing us to at this end is saying, In the Lord, in Christ, this is where we stand. This is where the real battle exists. It's really our fight to stay in Christ more than it is anything else. And so spiritual warfare is about not forgetting that our first movement is to be in Christ. I can't overstate this because I think one of the best ways to actually lose the spiritual battle is by forgetting that the battle is not yours to fight. (laughs) It's actually the Lord's to fight. And he's already won it. And that Satan, although he fights and he threats and he threatens and he schemes, is a defeated enemy. He's already lost. And I've seen it happen too many times that with Christians that I know, with Christians that I've pastored over the years, that spiritual defeat has happened because they've forgotten that in too many cases. And in fact, instead they've given too much undue attention and fascination to Satan and to evil in the world. I think Klein Snodgrass sets this up well for us. He says this, The goal in this, regarding spiritual warfare, is to avoid evil, not to focus on it. Christians often make the error of giving the devil way more than he is due. The devil is more interesting to them than God, and he gets more attention. This is a twisted kind of idolatry and the very thing that evil wants. If you are fascinated by evil, you will be enticed by evil. By focusing on evil, we destroy ourselves. By focusing on God, we find life and protection. God deserves our attention, evil does not. In asking us to put on the armor of God, this text directs our attention away from evil and to God and his purposes. The New Testament focuses on the devil and demons for only two purposes, to say that evil and death are defeated and to warn us not to be beguiled by evil. And by the way, this is exactly what Paul does in the letter to the Ephesians, by the way. He gives all of the attention and all of the ink to talking about Jesus. For five and a half chapters, he's talked about what Jesus has done to secure our salvation, our identity, our hope, our calling. Remember Ephesians chapter 1, he talks about the power and the authority of Jesus that has already won the victory for us. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, I'll remind you, he says this, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? according to the working of his great might, that he, who is God, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, the right hand of power in the heavenly places, the resurrection, the ascension, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Paul wants us to know in this passage how completely God has provided for our needs in Christ. Our need to be protected, our need to be, our our need to experience victory amidst uh, amidst attack that comes. But we need to understand this, that this section is not, so this section is not designed to scare us by talking about the fact that there is evil out there that's out to get you. This is not a passage that's kind of talking about shaming us because our inability our inability to be strong enough to resist sin and evil it's here to encourage us 
It's here in the end to be an encouragement to tell us, look, God has provided all that you need to face what will come. God has provided all that you need to face those fiery flaming darts of the evil one, which will come but cannot defeat the victory that has already been won by Jesus. This week as I was writing this message, uh, of course the thunderstorms came through. This was Friday morning, and I was out on my back patio early in the morning kind of writing the message, and as I'm writing this, the lightning storm kind of came through. I don't know if, the, depending on where you, you, I guess depending on where you live, the lightning storm hit differently. We're out in Fountain Hills, and so it hit pretty hard on Friday morning. In fact, I don't know if I've, if I've ever been a part of a lightning, well, it's been a long time since I've seen a lightning storm like this, as far as how loud it was and really how close it was. At one point, I was looking at an app that was kind of showing you where the lightning strikes have hit the ground, and there was one that hit right across the street from my house, and there were like five or six that were hitting within a mile of where I was sitting, and so it was super loud, and it was really bright. Usually when I go out on the back patio, my, my two dogs like to follow me out there. They like to hang out, and then they kind of like run out in the yard, and they patrol the yard, and then they'll sit at my feet and that kind of thing while I, while I study or while I write the message. This case, one of my dog, only one of my dogs came outside, and that dog was like cowering in the corner the whole time. You could tell he had, this, <laughs> he had this struggle. He was dealing with his need to want to be loyal and want to be there with me, and then his need to survive. Because to him, those lightning bolts and that thunder that was coming was coming to end his life. And so he's sitting in the corner shivering, and finally the lightning honestly just got so loud that it was distracting. I couldn't even focus. And so I went inside, and I went inside, and one of my girls came up to me and said, the other dog, whose name is Cash, said, Cash is hiding under our bed because he's so scared because of the lightning and the thunder. And if you've seen Cash, he's a big, big animal, big size animal. And so it's funny to see that Cash was so uh, funny. It's strange to see that Cash was so, you know, scared. And so I went to see Cash, and he was literally shaking. Like, he was just sitting there shaking as I'm trying to settle him down. And one thing occurred to me, I couldn't help but think about it as I'm thinking about this passage and the threats and the attacks that come, is that, look, there are a lot, the threat of lightning, it was loud, it was bright, and really all my dog could hear and see was the threat that was coming. And he couldn't see the protection in realizing that he had no reason to fear because he was inside the house. The lightning was not going to strike him. That would be different if we were outside in our backyards waving a metal pole around, right? That's, that's dangerous. But we were inside the house completely protected. He had nothing to fear. Yet at the same time, all he could, see was the th- all he could hear were the threats of lightning and the flashes of lightning that were all around. And so it left him shivering and scared and afraid, hiding under the bed. And I think when we encounter what Ephesians 6 says, this command is basically saying, get into the house. Get into the place that will protect you from harm, which is in Christ. Be strong in Christ. And yeah, while you're in the house, right, the storms might affect you. I mean, my internet went out for a while. My lights went on and off. There were effects of the storm that were felt and that I saw, but at the same time, I was protected. We were safe. And Not trying to push the metaphor too far, but this is kind of what Satan does. He's limited. He'll affect you. He'll threaten. He'll be loud sometimes. It can be scary. But at the same time, in the end, we are told that we have been already protected. And this is the encouragement to check in and to to, to lean in, to be strong in that protection. Remember in the book of Job even, Satan had to ask permission for what he did to Job every single time from God. Satan is defeated He is a defeated foe, and he is one who is overseen and dominated by our sovereign God. And so the mentions of evil and the devil and fiery darts might get our attention because they are threatening. But the real purpose of this section is to see how this really works for those who are in Christ. That our source, our strength, the ability that we have to stand in the struggle, whatever that struggle may be, is is what Jesus has already won for us. The one who has overcome death in the resurrection and his ascension, as we just saw from Ephesians 1. Now, here's the thing. For those of us who, are, who, who know Jesus, who know the story of the Bible, it's not hard for us to trust in the resurrection of Jesus, probably, and his ascension. Right? We know that he rose from the dead. Right? We know the Bible tells us in many places, including in Ephesians, that he's at the right hand of God. He ascended to the right hand of God, the place of power where he exercises authority over all creation. I think for us, the bigger struggle is understanding what that exactly means for us today as Christians. And Paul anticipates that. Remember in Ephesians chapter 2, he actually says this. After talking about how Jesus is seated, has risen from the dead and is seated at the right hand with the Father, he says this about us in Ephesians chapter 2. 
But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And here it is in verse 6. And raised us up with him, with Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen to that for a moment. It's as if the resurrection and the ascension has already happened. That's how Paul is talking about this. This is who you are in Christ. Seated with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. With that being said, of course, this passage is a passage about spiritual warfare, and it's one of the most important passages on the topic. I think it's really needed because spiritual warfare is not always talked about in the church, and I think when it's talked about, it's maybe not always talked about as faithfully uh, or as accurately as it should be. And we talked a little bit about this already, but this first part, in this first part, God has told us a few things about what spiritual warfare looks like. And I want to cover these three things, and then we'll get into the next section. First of all, he tells us what spiritual warfare is. Spiritual warfare is to be expected, right? The Bible is very clear in this place in particular and other places that, uh, that we live in a world where there are dark cosmic and spiritual powers that have declared war on God and his kingdom and his church, and they are on constant attack. These forces and powers are called demonic in Scripture, and they exist under the direction and the headship of the lead demon who we know as Satan or, as this passage calls him, the devil. Secondly, how? Well, this passage, as this passage says, the devil has his schemes. He is an intelligent and personal being who plans and then carries out his plans to kill, to, kill, to steal, and to destroy what is good and what is God-honoring in creation. So along with Satan, the demonic forces hate God's purposes in this world, and they hate God's people. And they prowl around looking to launch spiritual attacks at whatever they can to bring evil and destruction and brokenness. And apparently, as this tells us in Ephesians, that they are doing this in the unseen spiritual realms, but of course we see the physical results of that in the world that we live in around us. And we'll talk more about those attacks and what their effects look like in this next section. And then finally, this question of who. I think we should take particular notice of the fact that Paul tells us to recognize that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, our real battle is not against people. It's not even a natural war for the kingdoms and the nations of this earth. Paul's not talking about that here. He's talking about the fact that our fight is against the evil spiritual forces and our struggle is against them and not flesh and blood. It's important for us to think about this because we can so easily make the jump from evil spiritual forces to evil people. And by evil people, we just mean like those people over there that we either disagree with or maybe that are in the world somewhere or that have hurt us in some way. And it's so easy to say that those are evil people. <laughs> When in reality, what we have been told to do is love those who are far from Jesus so they might know the saving grace of Jesus. And when it becomes us against them instead of us for them, actually Satan's beginning to win the battle already. So our fight is not against flesh and blood. The mission of the church is that we would love our neighbors in the world and reach those who don't know Jesus so that they can be reconciled to God through Christ. Which brings us then to Ephesians chapter 6. The, moment, the, the peace we've all been waiting for. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 14 uh, through 24, this peace that we've all been waiting for, the discussion of what the armor of God looks like. Verse 14 starts this way. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which you can, by which you can extinguish the, all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in change, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Verse 21, so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. Tachychus, the, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you might, that you might know how we are, and that he might encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So, 
Again, notice that this, com- this section even starts with this command to stand strong in the Lord. Paul repeats this phrase over and over again throughout this passage because this is the thing he wants us to focus on. Stand your ground, stand strong in the Lord. It happens like four or five times in this section. right? And these are all ways of staying. Again, stand in what God has provided for you. He has given you everything that you need to face this struggle, to face even the fiery darts or the flaming darts of the evil one. And even in the command here, we can't really see it in the English, but in the Greek, this is, actually a pa- this is actually a command that's given to us in the passive voice. In other words, it's something that happens to us. Even the standing is something that happens to us. It's something that we are given standing by the grace and mercy of God so that we can stand in Christ, then to face whatever may come. So again, this shows us how much we are completely dependent upon God's provision to fight this on our behalf. On our end, then, again, the winning the right battle means winning the battle to stay in Christ. That is our main calling when it comes to spiritual warfare, that we stay and stand in Christ. And it's not even just for the sake of being powerful to face what we face. It's for the sake of being in relationship with Jesus, which is the point of it all in the first place. Again, Klein Snodgrass puts it this way. The goal is a life in relation to God. Power is not for impressive acts, but for living obediently. Power is not a current to be turned on and off. It's a continual relational empowering that results from living in Christ. Nor is this a power to be used for our personal advantage. The power has one purpose, to enable us to stand with God and against evil. The main point is the same as it's always been throughout this book. Because of what God has done to save us and to reconcile us to himself, we get to live in Christ. This is about putting on Christ, putting off the old self, putting on our salvation, our identity, our calling, all that comes from Christ represented as the armor of God. And in this, I think we see two things are true about spiritual warfare. Satan schemes, and he attacks, and he is active, but at the same time, God in his sovereign wisdom and his power and his love has already provided all that we need to be protected from every scheme and attack of Satan. It's really that simple. When it comes to spiritual warfare, that's what it breaks down to. Yes, Satan is active. He schemes. He attacks. But at the same time, what is also true and what is more true, if you will, is that God in his sovereign wisdom and his power by his love has given us everything we need by his provision to, to, to stand against every attack of Satan. And so as we jump into that list, I think it's important for us to remember that. We're going to jump into this list of all the different ways, all the different things that, that uh, Paul focuses on. And I want to do it this way. We're going to talk about how Satan attacks. So what are those fiery darts? What do they typically look like according to Scripture? And then how has God provided a provision in the discussion of these, of these uh, pieces of the armor of God to protect us from those fiery darts? And by the way, these are all going to be, uh, <laughs> these are all going to be, there's alliteration happening here. So these are all going to be words that start with D. I don't know that I did this on purpose. D can stand for devil, it can stand for darts, whatever you want it to stand for. But in reality, like I just started getting into this and realized like deception and discouragement and all these words started with a D, so I just went with it. But here we go. So the first one is this, deception. The first way that Satan tries to aim his darts at us is through deception. So deception, I think, or lying is a natural place when it comes to spiritual attacks because it's the basis for all of Satan's attacks. It's at the core of who he is. Remember, Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 44, he, that is Satan, was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is the father of lies. He is the source of all that is deception. He can't speak truth because there is no truth in him. That's how he started everything with the temptation with Adam and Eve. If you remember that in the garden, he started with deception. He started with lies. Something, and sometimes, sometimes when he deceives us, it looks like a straight lie. It's an obvious lie. Sometimes it's a deception based upon distorting the truth, which is oftentimes even more threatening and dangerous because just a slight twist in the truth can be a lot more deceptive than something that we already know is a lie. For instance, when Satan tempted Jesus, he twisted Scripture by telling Jesus, if you throw yourself off the top of the temple... God will send his angels concerning you and he will rescue you. And of course, Jesus responded with truth, with real truth. Scripture also says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan will deceive us about our own self-righteousness and pride so that we always think we are right and we never sin, which keeps us away from confession and repentance. He'll convince us even when we do recognize sin that our sin is not really that bad. 
which takes, a, takes away our realized need for God's amazing grace and his mercy. And many well-meaning religious and spiritual people have been kept away from Jesus by deception. You'll hear a lot of people say, I believe in God, but I don't really need to be a Christian or follow Jesus in order to know God. And yet we know that the truth says, Jesus tells us, no one comes to the Father except through me. Satan doesn't just lie, but he lies about lies, and then he convinces us that those lies are the truth. The main mode of, of attack for Satan is deception, and so the first piece of armor mentioned in God's provision is the belt of truth in verse 14. I think all of this, as you, as you kind of take all this in, what, what, what uh, Paul's actually picturing for us is a common Roman foot soldier who was known as a legionnaire. It's an example of what a legionnaire might have looked like uh, during uh, first century Rome. You can see his shield, you can see all the armor. Um, that is kind of the, the warm weather uh, uh, the warm weather uniform, we skip to the next slide, what we can see is a picture of what a soldier might have looked like with kind of the uh, cold weather uniform on. But what he tells us is that as we put on the belt of truth, when the belt was fastened on a soldier's uniform, what it did was basically put everything else in its place. It was tied around the waist, and then it was also used for girding or tying up long robes like, like, uh, like this soldier has on him, so that as the soldier got ready to fight, he wouldn't trip over his robes, and he'd be free to move as he needed to in order to fight. So the belt was central to the uniform. It put everything else in place. It was a reference point for the rest of the uniform, and it tied up everything so that as the soldier ran, he wouldn't trip over the robes that were hanging down to his feet. I think, again, this is metaphorical, but you get the general idea here. God's truth is his word, and it's the first place we go. His word holds everything else together, and it's the basis for us to stand strong in battle. It's the reference point for every other piece of the armor. I think this is especially true when Satan operates in deception, because deception has to be countered by the truth. We saw the way Jesus did that when Satan tried to deceive him. And just as a soldier wouldn't fight before first tightening his belt because he might trip and fall over his robes, uh, we, we might easily fall into the traps that are set for us or trip over our own feet if God's word is not fastened around our waist. As David says in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp unto my feet and it is a light unto my path. When you join that refrain with Paul's refrain over and over again throughout the book of Ephesians where he encourages us to walk wisely, you get this picture of someone who is walking wisely by God's word because they can see where they're going and the belt of truth frames this in such a way that they don't trip over themselves and they can see the traps that are set for them in the path in front of them. And it also orients us to walk wisely as we follow Jesus. The belt of truth is essential to making those steps forward and walking in wisdom. So we go from deception then. Satan also aims his fiery darts at our desires. In the last series in the book of James, we saw James say this in James chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Now, of course, one of the biggest points of what James is saying here is that you know, our desires cause us to sin. In other words, we can't always say the devil made me do it in every case, right? Those desires actually come from our hearts. But as we see this process of how desires lead to sin and then sin leads to death and entrapment and all the rest that James talks about there in the context of James chapter 1, we can see that what Satan does is he uses our desires as they're tilted to point us towards temptation, to point us towards destruction, and to keep us bound in our own sin. He works through our desires. Now, Desires, of course, are not bad in and of themselves. God has given us very good desires in many cases. Uh, a desire, but, but it's often a desire for something good that, t that Satan takes and deceives us and twists in just a way that actually turns it evil and sinful and becomes destructive. I think one of the obvious of this is something like sexual desire. Right? Sexual desire is something that God has created for our good, and it's a good thing to be celebrated when it's expressed in the marriage relationship. But there's probably no other desire on the planet throughout human history that has caused more damage and havoc and heartache and destruction than twisted sexual desire. There are also desires for things like comfort that can turn into greed, desires for affirmation that's a good thing that can turn into pride and vanity as a sin. There's desires for security 
that can turn sometimes into violence or even murderous actions, and the list goes on and on, but you get the point. I think whatever it may be, here's the thing. It's a rare thing that people realize that their desires in and of themselves are bad. Most of us like to justify and rationalize our desires, but Satan, look, Satan can't read our minds. He doesn't know our hearts, but he is an observer of human nature. He's been observing human nature for thousands of years, and he knows exactly what it takes to just kind of nudge us in a certain direction when he sees that desire going twisted. And so God's provision is to protect us by giving us the breastplate of righteousness. Now, the word righteousness is a word that we see happen a lot in Scripture. It refers, it's a covenantal term that refers to two things. It refers to right relationship with God, and it also refers to right behavior that we live out, out of right relationship with God. So when we see it in the New Testament, what it becomes is our relationship with Jesus, right? As we are drawn into relationship with Christ, as we trust him as our Savior, we are brought in as new creations, made new by the Spirit, and then we live out the character of Jesus. Both of those are aspects of righteousness. We are made right with Jesus, we are justified, but then we are also sanctified at the same time so that the righteousness of Jesus on our behalf that justifies us is then the righteousness of Jesus that is lived out in our lives by the working of the Spirit, the character of Christ. So when Paul talks about the breastplate of righteousness here, I think it's very fitting that righteousness becomes a breastplate because, of course, the breastplate was the place that covered the heart of the soldier. It was a place that protected his heart. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it's the peace that protects our hearts. It makes me think of Proverbs chapter 4 that says, Guard your heart with all diligence, because everything that you do comes from it. The heart is biblically understood to be the seat of the will. It's the reason why we do what we do. It's what holds our desires. To get back to James, when James talks about our desires, this is where our desires come from. It comes from our hearts. It's where it's formed. It's where it transforms into action. And so the provision that God gives us is to transform our hearts, is to transform our character. That's the breastplate of righteousness, which covers our hearts. And so as John says in 1 John, as a Christian, greater is he who is in you, the Spirit of God, who is remaking you, than he who is in the world, the enemy, the Satan, or the, the enemy, the devil who is attacking. From desires, we move to distraction. I think distraction, this falls under this heading of calling, right? One of the things that Paul is diligent about in Ephesians is telling us this calling of the church, this calling of what it means to follow Jesus. And in Ephesians chapter 5, he actually says this. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, he says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Look, if Satan can't keep us from salvation in Jesus, he will do everything he can to thwart the calling of Christ and the mission of, church, of the church in the world. And he often does that through distraction. What we read in, 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 in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells us to look carefully and be wise about how we are walking and to make the best use of the time to redeem the time. It's Satan's goal, goal to distract us from that mission. And I don't know if you've noticed, but there is no shortage of distraction around us in our world. We often live distracted lives, whether it's work or it's media, social media, activities, vacations, hobbies, whatever it may be. Again, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. We have to work. It's not bad to have entertainment and enjoy things. It's not bad to go on a vacation or have a hobby or any of those things. But the reality is those things can often become distraction. And Satan works through distractions to keep us ineffective in terms of our discipleship and our followship into the mission of God in the world. So many times, we don't engage in the church because we say that we're too busy. We can't come on Sundays, or we can't serve in the church because our schedules are too busy. We can't give to the church or support the poor because we don't have any money left. We spend it all on activities and hobbies and all the rest of life. We don't share the gospel because we have other interests or we get distracted about other things that take our, take our attention. We don't regularly participate maybe in worship or intentional discipleship in things like community groups or Bible studies. Again, because we have too much on our schedules. Again, all good things that get turned into distractions. And distractions can be so difficult to recognize because we don't, when we're distracted, we don't realize we're distracted. That's kind of the nature of distraction. And Satan works through those things very subtly in many ways to distract us 
from the focus and the purpose of discipleship and mission in the world. And so God's provision for distraction are the shoes that are fitted with readiness, given by the gospel of peace. I think the fact that this is described as shoes reminds us of how important, again, it is for us to walk wisely. It reminds us of the movement in terms of following Jesus in our lives. And when he tells us to, be, to, to, to put those shoes on and those shoes should be marking us and getting us ready for readiness with the gospel of peace, that there's a sense of urgency and focus that comes along with this as well. That we should be people of the gospel. People who are encouraging each other in the gospel. People who are following Jesus through the gospel of Christ. And people who are sharing the gospel out into the world. This is the readiness of the shoes and the feet that are ready to follow Jesus. And when that becomes, when the mission of the good news of the kingdom of Jesus is our focus, the other things that become distractions have a way of fading off into the background. Or at least they have their right place in our lives. From distraction, the next one is division. Now, of course, so much of this letter in the book of Ephesians has been about the importance of the unity of the church. We've seen that over and over again. Paul tells us to do everything we can to maintain the unity of the church as those who, as different as we may be, as different as, we may, uh, as, different as our backgrounds may be, especially in the church of Ephesus, so many different backgrounds and socioeconomic classes and those kinds of things, as different as they may be, we are told that we hold together in one body and one spirit to one faith, one baptism, one Lord, and that's what really counts. In his encouragement, though, Paul cautions us against the work of Satan in the midst of division. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 27, Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Right? Unity right there. Verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity, or this may be translated foothold, to the devil. Look, Satan will work in our disagreements and our differences to drive us into division in relationships. And he will work especially hard at doing this inside the church, which unfortunately has just honestly been something he's had a lot of success with in churches over this past year or so. I mean, how many times have differences and secondary issues become division in the church? Satan delights in working in division. And in the midst of that, he even deceives us and, and distracts us in the midst of all that. He uses all the other things in the midst of division to break apart unity within the church. And before you know it, it's become full-blown spiritual warfare in a church community. And it can happen so quickly. Again, this is why the gospel of peace is our provision. Not just the gospel, but the gospel of peace, as Paul says. From Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, he describes for us what the gospel of peace looks like. For he himself is our peace, that is Jesus, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. As we said earlier, this message of peace is because it's, God, it's God's desire really to reconcile us and to reconcile the world through a reconciled church. If you add to the fact that these commands in Ephesians 6, by the way, all that we see here are actually plural commands. They're actually in the plural form. They don't pick up too well in, in English. Right? We see all these commands to stand in the Lord and to put on the armor and all these kinds of things. These are actually in the plural form in the original language. So they're given to us as the church, as a community, almost as the church is viewed together as, as if we were like one man, one body, standing as one unit together, as a group of soldiers, if you will. It's not primarily even an, an individual calling, it's a church community, plural calling. From there, last, last three here. Discouragement. Discouragement takes on a lot of forms in our life, often comes from a lot of different sources. Sometimes discouragement just comes from situations that we face in life. Maybe it's difficulty, maybe it's suffering of some kind that causes us to get discouraged. Maybe it's just we look at our life or we look at a situation, we just think that's hopeless. That can bring discouragement. Sometimes discouragement comes from our emotions or our reactions. We just have an overwhelming time, at times maybe you have an overwhelming time of just feeling discouraged for no particular reason. Sometimes discouragement comes to us spiritually, like doubting our faith or doubting in God and who he is and what he, do, what he can do and whether or not he hears us. Like the word discouragement means dispiritedness or lack of enthusiasm. And so discouragement often causes a lack of zest for life. It causes a lack of courage, if you will. 
to take on what, what the life, uh, or, or to take on what's in front of you. And so it can be easy to see why discouragement is one of Satan's strongest tools, and he uses it often to cause us to focus on the difficulty or the emotion or the doubt that's in front of us, as if that thing were the reality itself. Instead, what Paul says is that God gives us the shield of faith. The shield of faith. And since discouragement can be deep for some people, and it often can be a frequent visitor, the shield of faith is what God gives us as a provision. Now, if you saw in that, in that picture before, that rendering of the legionnaire, you saw how big that shield was. It's actually a body shield. You see it there. Typically about four feet tall, two and a half feet wide. It was a wooden, it was a wooden shield that was covered in leather and typically soaked in wood for the very purpose of extinguishing fiery arrows that might hit that shield. And a legionnaire, of course, would kneel down behind his shield and place his whole body behind that shield when there was an onslaught coming and an attack coming, especially from arrows that were flying at him. And it would protect him in that way. Sometimes when you're discouraged, all you can do is just kneel down and fall down behind the shield of faith. And here's the biggest thing about the shield of faith. Is that it, the shield of faith doesn't refer to our faith. It doesn't refer to our ability to trust in God. The shield of faith is all about God's faithfulness. It's all, about, it's all about the strength of this shield being dependent upon God's promises and his ability to follow through on the promises that he has made to us. And his faithfulness to be with us even and especially during times of discouragement. Satan will try to turn you on the situation, the emotion, the doubt. The shield of faith focuses on, on the things that are unseen. Again, when you're reading a book, uh, like a book of Ephesians, and you open it up, and you're reading this letter, and it tells us that we, we are uh, seated with Christ in the heavenly places, <laughs> that we have every spiritual blessing that is in Christ in the heavenly places, I mean, those are statements of faith. You can't see it yet. But Paul is telling us to live as if that were actually true for us, even right now. It's the eternal indicatives, again, that determine the present imperatives. And it's the life of faith. It's the shield of faith. Helps us to see beyond the circumstance that's in front of us to see through the eyes of what is unseen but promised to us through God's faithfulness. And you can imagine how powerful that provision might be when it comes to discouragement. Paul is talking about the faithfulness of God and in his faithfulness and in Jesus' activity to defeat sin and evil once and for all one day and to bring everything to right in his creation. So defeat Two of these left, defeat. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, calls Satan the accuser, which means that Satan is active in accusing the saints based upon our sin. He wants to see us wallow in our shame, and he wants to see us downplay the mercy and the grace, and the great mercy, the great uh, forgiveness and grace of God. And so if Satan can get a Christian to believe that their identity is in their sin rather than in Christ, Shame and defeat can quickly follow. You know, in Ephesians, this is why Paul writes initially to the saints or to the holy ones who are in Ephesus. He made a big point at the beginning to say that Paul doesn't write to the sinners in Ephesus, right? Because he, what he's doing is calling out their identity. This is who you are. Yes, you may sin, but your sin is not your identity if you are in Christ. In Christ, your identity is in his righteousness, is in his holiness, is in his identity. You stand with him. And of course, all of this works uh, so much, what, what Satan tries to do works so much against all that Paul has been trying to do in talking about the victory that Jesus has won on our behalf. And he wants to negate the victory of Jesus in our mind, causing us to doubt the power of Jesus's salvation on our behalf. And so God's provision, of course, is the helmet of salvation. And when you think about that, the function of the helmet is, is often what distinguishes the identity of a soldier from one to another. So as two soldiers meet in the battlefield, it's often their helmet that is seen first that distinguishes which side they're on, which army they're fighting for. They had distinctive helmets, and so this distinguishes the identity, of course, of who that soldier is. And as Paul has been so big about our identity in Christ, it makes sense. Also, of course, we realize that the helmet protects the most important part of our body. The head, everything flows down from the head. Everything flows down from our salvation. The most important protection that we have is the covering of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And then finally, Satan will try to work through disconnection. 
The peace that brings all of this together in the end, really all of the book of Ephesians together, is again the relationship that a Christian has and the communion that a Christian has with Jesus. It's the point of it all. Beyond all these discussions about power and blessings and all these things, as wonderful as they may be, the thing that matters in the end is relationship with Jesus. And because relationship is really the point, one of the ways that Satan tries to work at is at the place of disconnection and disassociation with Jesus. And he does this in all kinds of ways, whether it's deception or distraction or discouragement. We could say all those things are a way of disassociating us or trying to disconnect us with Christ. But Satan tries to use our disconnection, or maybe here's another word, disinterest, so that our Christianity becomes more about dead, legalistic religion than it is about a living relationship with Christ. And in that case, then he has made our religion just about mere rules and regulations and traditions that really have no life in and of themselves. This is what the Israelites struggled with over and over again in the Old Testament. God said, I don't want your sacrifices. Stop trying to obey me by the law because your heart is far from me. It's also what Jesus confronted the Pharisees on. For the sake of your traditions and laws and rules, you nullify the word of God. You've completely missed the point. And so for what is arguably the most important of these, God gives us the most impressive piece of armor of all, of all. One that is actually a weapon. It's called here the sword of the spirit and the word of God, which joins together God's word, specifically the gospel of Jesus, which is our salvation, which brings us reconciliation in Christ, brings us to Christ, and then the spirit itself. He who is the presence of God, the person of God in us. So that we might live lives that are in Christ, that are full, and that are, that are connected to communion with God himself. That his very spirit dwells within us. So that we are in Christ for relationship, we are in Christ for identity, we are in Christ for new creation and hope. And it's the sword of the spirit and God's word that draws those things together. And in the end, that's a reminder of really what is our battle to fight in all of this. The battle for us to fight is to stand in the ground that Jesus has already won for us. To stand in Christ. And of course, Paul ends this section with an encouragement to pray. And as you read this, it might seem like kind of just a, a natural or, or a normal ending to a letter, right? There are some kind of farewells and those kinds of things. But the, one that he, the thing that he tells us to do in all of this is to continue in prayer, which is a proper response not only to what he's saying here in Ephesians 6, but really a proper response to the entire letter that is so focused on communion that we have with God. And prayer is that action, that response that represents that we know that we have communion with God, that we know that we have communion with Christ. Because prayer is is a personal conversation and response to God who has drawn us into relationship with himself. And so with that in mind, as we close out this book, let's pray that God would show us, that God would really um, impress upon our hearts the wonderful lessons of the book of Ephesians, which honestly we could have spent another 12 weeks on. Um, But let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning uh, for your word. It never ceases uh, to amaze me that these words on a page can actually become uh, living in our lives. And so as we we think about uh, what it means for all these pieces of what you call the armor of God to take, for us to take on and for us to live in and be protected by in our lives, Lord, we are so thankful for the way that you have loved us, the way that you've shown us as a father that you provide for us, the way you have understood us and anticipated even what we struggle with and the attacks that we may face in this world. Lord, for every attack, you have an answer. For every threat, you have a provision. And for every every danger, you have protection. So Lord, help us to see that um, our calling is truly to rest in that, to fall into that, to trust you in the end, as difficult as it may be sometimes, as much as we kind of want to run outside and wave around a metal pole in the middle of a lightning storm. Father, you have told us to stay in you. You are the one who will protect us, and you are the one who has won the victory on our behalf. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us live in the victory that you have given us. Spirit, would you teach us, and would you remind us what that looks like? 
as we take on these pieces, whether it's righteousness or truth or the sword of the Spirit who brings us life in our faith rather than just dry religion, who changes us, causes our feet to be ready and to be wise to walk in the way that you have called us to because it is the best and most faithful way. Lord, direct us in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. What a perfect song to end, huh? Perfect song to end on. It's almost like we talked about that. We actually didn't, though, so that's cool. <laughs> Uh, you know, one of the things, of course, is this song just reminds us of the way that we fight, the way primarily the way that we battle is to pray. And so uh, if you uh, if you need prayer uh, following the service, uh, we have uh, Craig and Lisa Douglas, who are our prayer partners for this service. Uh, they'd be happy to, to, to pray with you. We also have prayer cards that are located on the back of the on our table in the back of the room here. And so you can grab one of those prayer cards, write down your prayer requests. Drop them if, in the offering stand, and it's our pleasure. It's our, it's our, we consider it our privilege to join with you in fighting and battling in prayer alongside you and bearing those burdens with you, whatever they may be, whether they're for you, your family, coworkers, whatever it may be. Uh, we love praying with you guys and joining with you in prayer. So go out and enjoy the afternoon that you have in front of you. Have a great week. We look forward to seeing you again next week. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.